slash and cast. Fiends to handle Whisker presented by the Slash and Cast Podcast Network. Our show discusses horror movies and the phobias that they emphasize. Here we are at the start of a new year. Uh, it's a new month. We got uh, our returning back to our roots with the phobias. And uh, throughout the month of January, we'll be taking a look at the fear of dolls, aka pediophobia. And, uh, you know, we primarily chose this one uh, because we do have the first big. Uh, genre release theatrically coming later in the week with the release of Megan, uh, which I know we're all looking forward to. Hopefully it is going to uh, live up to the expectations. I know there's always kind of been like that stigma about January horror releases being not always that fantastic, but you know, we saw 2022 across the entirety of the year was pretty solid for the genre. And uh, really, the January death slate is kind of a theme of the past where uh, we have been getting some more notable releases at that point in time. Uh, but, you know, looking forward to diving into tonight with my selection. Uh, but I know we got some other great stuff planned. Uh, but, of course, as you can see, joining me tonight, as always, are my co-hosts, Holly and John. You two, how are you doing tonight? Hi. We're filming in different locations because it's pretty bad weather over here in San Francisco. Mm. There's a big storm happening. And sirens going. Yeah, it's not the tornado sirens. <laughs> it's pouring and windy over here. Lots of uh, really Man, you guys are going to California? I thought that was a myth. <laughs> we finally have rain. It hasn't rained in like 10 years. I know. My favorite thing about it is that people will stop saying, well, it was good because we really need it. So <laughs> that's my favorite thing about storms. <laughs> mm. At least big dangerous ones. That's how that's how we cope here with with these rainstorms, as we say. We need it though, it's good. <laughs> it's kinda of like the, the Midwest whenever it's cold and you like step outside and then everyone just doesn't mention how cold it is. Yeah, I fucking know. Like we're in the Midwest. It's like Jesus Christ. <laughs> All right. Well, shall we get into yeah. it? Talking about <laughs> Magic 278. Oh, Sorry, I have to say real quick about the Megan thing. Uh, did you see that Megan football halftime dance thing? No. That, <laughs> that was weird. I mean, it was interesting. But anyway, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I hadn't heard yeah, I hadn't well, seen or heard as... of that. That's Okay. Yeah, as John was alluding to, like, during the Rams game, they had a bunch of uh, dancers dress up as Megan, and they wow. were doing, you know, some cho choreography in regards to, like, the dance routine that she does in the hallway. Right. Uh, but, you know, they weren't they weren't all in unison, because they were all, like, doing the, the mm. you know, the, the head bob thing back and forth, but, you know, opposite of one another. It was definitely interesting, but, uh, you know, they kind of, like, piggybacked off of uh, basically what they did for Smile yeah. when that was coming mm -hmm. out with their... Uh, great campaign that they did. Uh, but, you know, just 
You're speaking about genre releases really quick. Uh, it's been a pretty big day for uh, the genre. We got the trailer for Evil Dead Rise earlier today, uh, which looks fan-fucking-tastic. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, I saw that trailer, and I was like, holy shit. Yeah. It does look awesome. I don't know if it's... I, I'm not sure who the director is. Do you know off the top of your head? But um, it they did a good job of making it look like a direct sequel of the previous mm-hmm. Evil Dead reboot. You know, it, it it really has that same kind of look to the, yeah. the creatures. It, it does look like it's going to be a brand new story. I mean, even in the trailer, they hint at it by like, oh, I found this book. And presumably the the corresponding recordings, and then they're just kind of unleashing hell in a whole new scene. So, but yeah, it looks really, really excited about it. And the, the recording is on vinyl this time. Ooh, <laughs> so cool! Very hip. Very hip. <laughs> yep. Now they're just gonna play it backwards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. make this eviler or better, like like. <laughs> It'll be like the gate. Uh, where the, when you play it back that backwards, that's the spell to dispel the demons. Ah. Remember in the in the gate from the eighties? <laughs> A good classic movie. <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, you know, speaking of classics, we got the nineteen seventy eight uh, magic for tonight's discussion topic. Uh, this is one that I'd only seen like one other time mm-hmm. uh, leading into tonight's recording, so it's always kind of like good to go back and revisit some of these older flicks. Uh, John, I know for you, you had mentioned uh, prior that this was a first-time watch for you. Uh, so I just want to get your general thoughts on what you thought of the movie overall. Yeah, i never seen it before, which is kind of weird because I wasn't even really aware of it. You know, how there are those movies that you've seen around forever but never watched. Uh but this one, I don't, I, I don't have no memory of even seeing, noticing this movie in the past. But I, I liked it. It's, I think, I'm, it's w- interesting. It's on one hand, it's a really good, high quality movie. Like it's well written, mm-hmm. and all the acting and all the, you know, directing are really good. But it definitely has flaws too, and kind of bigger, some chunky flaws. Chunky flaws. <laughs> like, big, big ones. Uh, but, you know, go, go ahead. Not talking about Anne margarets boobs? <laughs> <laughs> they do show. I there know! Are that was pretty great. I was like, is that Anne margaret nipple? I don't think I've ever seen Anne margaret <laughs> nipple before. <laughs> Write it down. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if she's ever, she was like, you know, if, if, for people who may not know, she's a classic actress from the early 60s. Dated Elvis Presley, you know, mm-hmm. a ton of movies. She was in Blue Hawaii, I think, mm-hmm. really famous. And then her famous movie was, I can't remember the name of it now, but uh, the one where she's a teenager that sneaks into this dude's house and basically they play this weird uh, game of cat and mouse where you know, mm-hmm. he's clearly sexually attracted to her and she's just fucking up his life. So, yeah. <laughs> kind of like that not and, movie with uh, with uh, Keanu Reeves. Something. And I wanted to, because uh, I, I thought off the top of my head, excuse me, that she's the Harbor Valley PTA girl, but she's actually not. I, it's that's somebody else. Um, but I found that really famous video on YouTube. It's on YouTube that I recommend anyone watch who 
wants to see her. It's her audition tape or film that she did before she made anything. She made this audition film and it went viral, you know, for 19, early 60s. And uh, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. It's like pretty awesome. Like you can see why she's a huge, became a huge star. But yeah, I don't know if she showed her boobs before in anything before this movie. I don't know. I mean, like, definitely all of her roles were really super sexy, like, vixen kind of roles. But, I mean, so you would think there'd be a nip slip somewhere. But a lot of them were in the 50s and 60s. So that might, you know, put a hamper on on some visibility, you know. So having this movie come out in 78, you know, it's just kind of, it makes a little bit more sense. And, I mean, you've got Anthony Hopkins. I mean, come on, for fuck's sake, that guy's fantastic. So I had a lot of time rewatching it. She looks amazing. And I don't even know how old she is, 78. So, I mean, if she started really young, we're talking maybe 40s in this movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know that up. Yeah. So, no, yeah, I, I, I've seen this movie a couple times. And I remember seeing it when I was a kid and how, like, heartbroken I was with the stupid heartbreaking ending. Because I just want them to make it. But, man, he's so crazy. I mean, like, no coming back crazy. Like, no way he can make a go of it crazy. But spoiler yeah. alert. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, uh, Burgess McNair. Yeah. In, and he's awesome. He's awesome. He's been in a million movies. Yeah. Rocky, mm-hmm. probably, maybe most famously, Mickey and Rocky. And even the guy who played her husband, whose name escapes me right now, like he, he was really mm-hmm. solid too. And uh, and a nice little. He's one of those, he's one of those that, that guy actors. Yeah. <laughs> He's been in a million movies as like the, the lower tier actor. You know? And definitely gives you like a little like a narrative twist with his personality shift in the middle of the movie. And just everybody mm-hmm. in this movie is super likable, including Fats. Although towards the end, I didn't know about him. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, oh, and uh, also, this is like another interesting thing is uh, Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, soundtrack. He's a huge, iconic uh, soundtrack writer. He's like one of those guys who did the soundtrack for every 80s and 70s movie, maybe 60s even. Uh, he's almost, you know, he's like John Williams before oh, John Williams. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of surprised because I didn't really realize how high budget this movie seems to be. I don't know, maybe it's mid-range or i feel like it's low budget because i mean like they just gotta pay the actors well and i'm sure they didn't do that very much back then so (laughs) we're not talking mcu money right so i'm like it's uh seven million was it seven million seven million budget in 1978 money which isn't too bad but i'm sure bigger budget movies were more in the double digit million how much did it gross was it like a, a hit I mean, because I'm imagining that movie. Uh, twenty-three. That's not too bad. Okay, that's decent. It did. It, it made it made a profit, mm-hmm. and uh, but it didn't, you know, stand the test of time. Maybe mm. uh, not just saying like, well, because I didn't know about it like that. <laughs> it's like I don't know. You don't hear. You don't see or hear about this movie a lot in terms of. You know, movies from this era. Because there wasn't a sequel. There wasn't like a Magic 2, The Return of Fats. Mm. Mm. With, uh, of course, with, you know, spoilers with Anne Margaret as the uh, new <laughs> Fats. 
And that was actually the- yeah, except she's not able to like talk and like not move True. her mouth, you know. And th- that was the voice of <laughs> Anthony Hopkins doing fats too. I was kind of surprised at the end when I was reading the credits. I was like, no shit, that's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying he was being a ventriloquist. I'm just saying that the voice change that he did was pretty good. Which I'm not even saying that he did it in the moment. I'm sure it was pre-recorded, but yeah. I thought it sounded pretty cool. Yeah, I was wondering that throughout the movie, too, if it was him or not. I actually, there was, like, maybe one or two moments where I thought, okay, I think that is him doing the voice. But for the most part, it just doesn't sound like him at all. Mm. And he's doing an American accent. Oh, yeah. (laughs) These days, I just assume if there's a good actor that seems American, he's probably British. (laughs) Or they. (laughs) And I didn't look at, uh, I didn't look at... Anthony Hopkins, uh, you know, like his resume or whatever. But I imagine this has to be one of his earliest movies. I think he was like a big theater guy before the movies, but this has to be an early one for him. I don't think he had hit it big yet at this point. I bet he was probably like mid-range just because like he's already kind of, I mean, the whole movie revolves around him and kind of, you know, kills it. (laughs) No pun intended. So, what 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 are you are you looking this up to? <laughs> yeah, it was the early seventies when he started mm. to break up. Oh, okay, so he's been doing some stuff at that point. Did you do you have right there? What did he do anything notable before this, or was it kind of smaller <clears> stuff? Let's see. I'm trying to see what's what it says like his breakout role is. Hmm. I don't. I don't really recognize these movies. So, yeah, that's. A th- I almost feel like his big break, breakout role was, uh, you know, Silence of the Lambs in the early mm-hmm. 90s or late, whatever that came. Yeah, out. I mean that or like the Elephant Man. Oh yeah, that's yeah, Elephant Man. Maybe that's that's probably his big one for sure. Hmm. Uh, that's where. Yeah, I think that might be where I first started hearing his name. Like as a kid, cause you hear about that. Neat. Go ahead. No, just saying neat. <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a novel turned movie, uh, and they did bring the writer of the novel, William Goldman, on to write the screenplay uh, for the movie adaptation. Uh, which you know, I'm not too familiar with the book, but I do know the book tells the story through Fats's perspective. Oh. Uh, so you don't really find out that, uh, you know, there's the other person behind the scenes until the very tail end of things. So, of course, with the movie adaptation, they had to kind of change things up uh, since, you know, we are following Anthony Hopkins character uh, Quirky as he's, you know, trying to make it as a uh, well. The earliest we see him, he's trying to be a magician, uh, which he, you know, still kind of does uh, when he's, like, trying to get his initial break. Uh, but, you know, the the early shows did not really go quite as planned because, uh, you know, basically no one was really paying attention to him when he was trying to do, you know, sleight of hand magic, uh, but really not having that sort of crowd engagement until he introduced his ventriloquy. Yeah, the audience is ignoring him and talking and made that funny part with like that uh blonde woman who's like laughing <laughs> so and, rude. Uh, 
You know, I actually, uh, we go to a regular comedy night. Well, we used to anyway, but there's always a few, actually. <laughs> Somebody who's had a few too many drinks. Or somebody's just bored with the performance and they're like, mm, I'm going to hang out with my friends. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, totally. The the people who are just, yeah, exactly. They're just hanging out and talking and everything. And he's trying to do his routine. Which, in fairness. Yeah, that's not him. Also, being up on a stage far away from the audience like that and doing card tricks where you're just showing like a deck of cards that's kind of hard to see what's going on and he's not like super the whole point is that he's not super charismatic right on his own uh Mm -hmm. and uh, not to mention that it was like a free night like a stand like a open mic right yeah his first one good luck with that (laughs) i've been to a couple of open mics and yeah and he just kind of dresses like a regular guy mm. on stage. He doesn't really have his uh, stage outfit or anything like that that he wears. Uh, which, you know, as a magician, you got to have your tuxedo or something like that. Top hat. <laughs> but, oh, and we also see his uh, Merlin. His, mm. his, his mentor, boss, right? Mentor, yeah. Who is dying, you know, seemingly. Yeah, and like, you know, back in the day when you would get like spoonfuls of random medicine like fed to you, like that's that that stopped happening, right? Like now people just take pills and go to the doctor. Not even that doctor, but you know <laughs> just pills off the street, maybe. Nobody could you know, walks around with a you know, bottle of syrup that they have to like keep taking. Yeah, uh yeah, your your spoonful of medicine. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. That's actually true. Uh, what happened to that? Medicine at the most is the <laughs> you know, right? Your, your tonic. <laughs> Fucking 76, 78. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tonics. <laughs> I mean, it'd either be that or just straight whiskey. Oh, yeah, exactly. Whiskey too. solves everything, you know? <laughs> you people know that a lot of medicine is just booze. At least the syrupy mm-hmm. stuff, anyway. Of course. Booze and opium. <laughs> That's the name of our next uh, but yeah, so. <laughs> You know, based off of that, you know, the initial conversation, you know, Merlin's just trying to get an idea of like, okay, well, how did the crowd react? And of course, Corky is just bullshitting his way through like the entire story that he's telling. And, uh, you know, Merlin basically sees uh, right through it. So we do actually get to see how everything does pan out, where Corky just kind of snaps at the audience, mentioning like, hey, you know, this is like a thousand dollars worth of like studies that you're seeing in front of you. And like, no one's really giving a shit. No one's paying attention. And, uh, you know, he just loses it really early on, which, you know, as you mentioned, it's understandable. You know, it's an open mic night. Not everyone's going to be paying attention. And even the talent that usually will show up on those nights are just starting to get into the field. That's the whole point, yeah. Just aren't seasoned. You know, it's just a way for them to overcome, uh, you know, any sort of stage fright they might have or just practice their gig, whether it's the first time that they're doing it or not. Because, uh, you know, for, for comedians, too, it's like, you're trying to find what actually sticks and you try to make altercations to stuff that you currently have in your set and just go back to see if, you know, maybe try a different punchline with it, but you keep uh, basically like the basis of it uh, kind of the same. Uh, so basically the idea here is Merlin's like, okay, we need to change things up a bit. We need to have a better gimmick for you uh, when you are performing on the stage. Uh, and that's when we have that combination of the magic as well as the ventriloquy. 
when we have the introduction of the uh, dummy, aka Fats, who is extremely foul-mouthed, and uh, which you know, there's definitely more of a spot for that in regards to like the comedy aspect, right. and that does come into play pretty heavily. But you know, you can see that that change in his presence from Corky's perspective as soon as the dummy's introduced. And then things just slowly start to unravel from that point on. I thought it was funny how uh, he, so after he does his first routine, I liked uh, how um, they told, he told Merlin about the way the audience acted where he was telling Merlin, he was sort of giving him like a watered down version of the story. But visually you could see that he was basically losing his shit and screaming at everybody. But um, I like how when in that second one. Second performance? Yeah. Or the second performance we see, I think it's sort of presumed. Years later, right? Was it? Performances. Other ones that we haven't seen. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's funny how he's bombing at first when he's just doing the magic, and then he brings the doll in, and the whole crowd just immediately loves uh, the doll. Like, they go from hating him to laughing uproariously at everything he says as soon as he brings the doll. Well, I mean, if Jeff Dunham can do it, why not Anthony Hopkins? (laughs) And I thought it was kind of funny how uh, the you know the there are those two characters. There's Burgess Meredith, his manager, and the other guy, the British guy, who's sort of like, what you know, like what's the deal with this comedian guy? And uh, he says, uh, "Oh God, I've totally lost my train of thought." <laughs> Go ahead. Well, something about like magicians never make it, or he talks about how in like in TV the the camera is on the person, so there's no misdirection. Yeah, well, I was thinking how it was kind of funny because he, one of the the other character, not Burgess Meredith, says, you know, magic is so outdated. And then when he does brings out the ventriloquist doll, he's like, oh my god, this is amazing. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, ventriloquism is pretty much just as outdated as being a magician is, especially in 1978. <laughs> where, you know. Do more straight up stand up comedy. Like, this is the era. They even mention, uh, Burgess Meredith's character mentions Steve Martin. Right. He, he says, We're going to, like, uh, you know, present you to the world the way we did uh, with Steve Martin. Uh, so, I mean, you have comedians like Richard Pryor and Steve Martin at this point, and John Belushi, and, uh, you know, people kind of laughing uproariously at a ventriloquist is a little well, bit. Well, Okay, you know, for the story, I'll buy it. No, no, but I mean, like, he mentioned Steve Martin, but Steve Martin was, like, a prop comedian when he first started. I mean, that fucker like, had, yeah, like, true. the arrow that goes over your head kind of... I mean, he was really good. Like, I'm, uh, I, I mean, I, I did once listen to one of his records, and I was like, no, no. But uh, <laughs> but if you actually watch videos of him, he's... Because he's, he's handsome, he's charismatic, and he, he has all these props. Like, that was a thing, you know? And if you even think about, like, Gallagher and shit, like, people like their yeah. props, <laughs> Especially in the yeah, that's true. Uh, but uh, I really, you know, you, you start to develop that. I, I, you start to get to know that Burgess Meredith character a lot more. 
uh, or gangrene, Ben Green. <laughs> and uh, he was he was pretty funny. Like at first when he he says that slime to uh, to that 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 other guy that he was showing uh, Corky to about how like oh you can drink the beer it's safe. And I was like, what the fuck is he talking about? And although I don't know entirely if there's more back up behind that, but I guess it's because they're both filthy rich and they're hanging out at a dive bar. Because then later on, you see Gang Green's got a Rolls Royce. He smokes these expensive cigars that come in glass tubes that he just fucking throws everywhere like he owns a place. Rude. But, uh, you know, just to show how rich he is and smart and like in control of his surroundings, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I noticed that the glass cases yeah, on the Christ, you animal. And he tosses them, yeah, he tosses them out. He just kind of tosses the case And they, the you side. hear them break, like there's broken glass where he hangs out. <laughs> what? I found that upsetting. <laughs> he's with the William Morris Agency, which is interesting because that's a, a real agency that is like the hugest talent agency mm-hmm. in reality. Which I thought was kind of interesting that they actually used, and you know, talked about real world comedians and things like that in this, which I feel like you couldn't do today because everyone is so tight with their copyrights and things and their image that I don't think a company like William Morris would maybe want <laughs> want themselves associated with this movie, at, you know, today as a as opposed to back then. Yeah, so during this performance, as, uh, you know, basically Corky is getting shown off on stage with the ventriloquy, uh, basically we have uh, Meredith uh, basically trying to, like, sign him onto the television show. Uh, and, you know, a, a lot of it stems down to, you know, his agents, you know, trying to book this. But, you know, there's a couple of things that need to happen in order for him to, like, get that initial pilot. Uh, which, of course, you know, he's really looking forward to doing because, you know, if that's a success, then it's basically skyrocket the fame at that okay. point in time. Uh, but, of course, before Pan can be put to paper, they want Corky to get a medical exam, which he is strongly opposed to. On principle. To. On principle, yes, you know. <laughs> and, you know, the manager's like, well, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> he was smart, though. What's that? Oh, I was just going to say, you know, like, Green's smart, though. He knows something's up. I mean, he, he he coddled him quite a bit, or at least he was really trying to, like, you know, bring him in in a positive way. He's like, we got the lawyers here. What do you, can, is this a deal breaker? And so he was trying, in fact, like, he was a super likable character, even later, you know, right before he gets offed. I, you know, I thought he was being sweet. And that was such a great scene, but we'll get to that later. And he says... Uh, he says to him too. Uh, the manager Burgess Meredith says to Corky, uh, "Like, don't be one of those celebrities that messes up right away." You're afraid of success, yeah. Yeah, where he's like, "Don't you know?" I forget how he says it, but he's like, "Don't you know? Get famous and then screw it all up the way that all these different comedians." And do. we have seen it quite a bit. Like that was it that Ezra Miller dude just. I believe he's not, they're not non-binary, sorry, but. (laughs) And even at this point, I think they're directly, like this story in this movie, they're directly referencing and they want you to be, you know, thinking about 
comedians like John Belushi and Richard Pryor, who were already famous for being on tons of drugs and having really like crazy lifestyles, you know, where they're known for partying all the time and stuff. I kind of thought more, it was more of the, uh, the people that don't even make it to the top because they, they're, they're too, it's just too much all at once. So like John Belushi and Richard Pryor, they made it to the top and they hung out there for a while and then they nosedived on all the drugs. Right. But I, but I think you're kind of, touching on one of the problems with this movie is that it doesn't i think there's a lot of like time compression in this movie where he's supposed to have like advanced in his career more than it seems like in when when you're watching it if that makes sense a little bit so they do this um they i kind of thought they set a timeline because I, I was paying attention to that because i was like oh that's interesting just from little tidbits of things they'd say. So for example, after uh, you've got the first bombing um, performance, and then you have another performance where he does well, where he's introduced, where uh, uh, Ben Green is there introducing him to the other dude. That's supposed to be what, like four or five years later? Was that right? Because they're like, oh yeah, he bombed the first time. And then he went and he worked on his routine and he came back. I can't remember a number of I, th- I think it was like one year. One year later. Okay. So it was one year later. And then he has a conversation with him at his dressing room that night saying, here's the plan. We're going to put you, we're going to send you to Vegas. Then you do all yeah. these talk shows. And, you, and the whole big ending is the, is the, the Carson show. And he says that should take about six months. And so um, he tells him to like, wait a little bit for him. And assuming that he waits a month, right? Like, and so we're talking about seven or so months maybe call it eight months because at the time of that he goes to the Catskills, he's already been on the Ben Car- on, the, on the Carson show and maybe a little bit after that. Right. But he's still waiting for that big break. He has, he doesn't have the pilot yet. So it sounds like it's only been like six to eight months after that, uh, that performance where we get introduced to fats. But I think one of the, that was for me, at least watching it, it felt awkward because those were such big jumps uh, in time that we weren't really like seeing or ha- it wasn't not that we have to literally see it but it was so compressed that I di- I felt like like it didn't feel to me like he was advancing that much right. like he, like I didn't feel like he was ch- changing or because you know he dressed like the same way throughout the entire movie so it almost felt like the whole movie took place over a much, much shorter period of time than it actually did. I get what you're saying, that, like, it wasn't like he was so established. And I feel like, you know, it's the equivalent of seeing a new stand-up guy, a person, whatever, mm-hmm. comedian, sorry, stand-up comedian on uh, on Jimmy Fallon, for example. And you've never heard of them. They're kind of spunky. and and But you see them because people would watch these shows. I mean, a lot more than we did, like they watch nowadays because there's so much more competition. And you would remember them from that episode and, and that's, but that's the level of fame they've got so far. So like to your point, like he's not like evolved as an artist since we see him perform for the first time with Fats. But I think like that's, but you're right that it's kind of, it's a little clunky because they get you thinking about the timeline too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, there, it doesn't feel like there's a growth or an advancement mm-hmm. in the character that's obvious where you're like, oh, okay. He I spent $200 on a cab. <laughs> 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 I don't do that now. <laughs> uh, 
did, what was the thing you were saying uh, just now, T, about um, the, uh, oh, the not signing the contract, mm-hmm. which was funny, because that's a, very much like a thing of its time, I think, because not only does he not want to sign the contract, but he wants to do the TV show, but he doesn't want to sign a contract, and he wants it to be like a gentleman's agreement. But he also references the fact that he's done this before with another situation. I forget what it was, but he was like, well, we've been doing this other thing with no contract, so I want to do the TV show with no contract. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking, man, like in 1978, you could conduct high-level, big-money business without a contract. And I mean, you actually hear about that in real life in from older times where people worked on a handshake and things like that. But you would never do that in the entertainment industry today. I don't even think you get away with doing that even in the 70s. I think that was like a special <laughs> thing for him, particularly because he didn't want to be subjected to any 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 form of scrutiny, actually, right? Because once people like invest, because you need a contract when you've got a big investment, right? When you've got a big investment, then you want to protect your investment with like, you know, something like something like that. But and he didn't want to be under the microscope at all. So. And it doesn't work for him because ultimately they uh, he'll crack within five minutes. <laughs> and this is where, you know, and this is just kind of a thing I was having watching the movie because I like to watch movies and see if there's sort of like a underlying story or like metaphor that they're telling and this is where i started to feel like this movie was sort of about being being like an entertainer a comedian who gets heavily into drugs and partying and as we're kind of talking about like you know john belushi and richard Pryor and stuff like that that sort of the the doll and the personality and his starting to sort of crack up and, you know, losing himself and sort of the doll a little bit taking over was sort of, could have been sort of read as like a metaphor for him getting into drug use and the not wanting to sign the contract or take like the health test is, you know, because he knew he would test positive for all these drugs. (laughs) I'm like, test positive for insanity. (laughs) which i don't know if that's the idea i don't know if this is like a story more about you know uh losing your sanity or drugs or all of it but there it definitely has that feel you know of like this isn't just a literal story about a guy and his ventriloquist it's not a straight up this is where you start to see that this isn't like a straight up supernatural horror movie where, because this was another thing I was thinking about a lot while watching it was, you know, is this, and you're meant to ask this question, I think the filmmakers want you to wonder, is this a supernatural situation where the ventriloquist doll is maybe possessed by Merlin? Like maybe Merlin figured out how to transfer his consciousness into the doll, or uh, you know, like is the doll possessed by a ghost, and is it <laughs> sentient unto itself? Oh, hi, you know, John. <laughs> but we also have the baggage of uh, previous ventriloquist stories. Twilight Zone famously has 
a uh, ventriloquist story where the doll is sentient and is its own being, you know, like Chucky or something like that. Also, the uh, crypt and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. also Goosebumps. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I know you guys are rewatching it, but did you wonder on the first viewings or before you knew about it whether it was like a supernatural story or a. Well, not not until uh, when he disposes of the Rolls Royce driver, because, you know, there are times in this movie when uh, Anthony Hopkins isn't actually controlling the dummy and you actually see Fats's like eyes blinking mm-hmm. or like his mouth moving. So, you know, you still have like that ongoing thought. But that only happens uh, when he's alone. That is true. So, I mean, because even the, the one the one exception, which then you realize isn't really an exception is when uh, Anne Margaret's husband is going through his things and finds uh, Ben Green's identification and, and other possessions. And all of a sudden, uh, Fats starts to move and he gets really close to check him out and stabs him. But then, of course, Anthony Hopkins was right behind him anyway. The only times that you see uh, Fats moves you know, basically unnaturally would be when he's having his breakdown and he's alone in the cabin uh, after he's already murdered two people. So at that point, mm-hmm. it's like you can also make the, the argument that it's all in his head, of course. And unfortunately, and like, and I don't know if um, I, I you know, I, I like the way your your brain works, John. But uh, so I saw this movie when I was a kid, and then I saw it again. I've seen it again a couple times, and uh, but never too like in a in a under very analytical eye kind of thing. Except you know, with the exception of this latest viewing that I um, that I just had, and I kind of did take it as a straightforward uh, story of a man that was already. Uh, antisocial, already um, mentally uh, fragile, we can say. And uh, as he's, uh, you know, he loses his mentor, who is basically his only friend. I mean, Ben Green is friendly, but that man isn't friends with nobody, you know, you know, because he's a professional. And so he ends up going back home to sort of like, you know, lick his wounds because he's so, com- um, he's so conflicted, or maybe he's he's just very uh, not conflicted. He's um. He's very scared of being exposed to so many people, right? Because that's what we're talking about, the whole fame and fortune thing. It means money, but it means interacting with a lot of people and just being exposed in general, right? Being vulnerable. And so he's freaking out and he goes back home and he sees like his high school sweetheart, or not really sweetheart, his high school crush. And at this point, he's already cracking up, right? And so to, you know, have this relationship kind of come up again, like... It's soothing, but I felt like it was probably really triggering as well because, you know, again, expose, exposing himself to somebody else emotionally or mentally. So I kind of took it as a more straightforward, like he's cracking up and then this, you know, uh, other persona that he's been using to be a bigger personality, it starts taking over his own timid, natural personality. And But, yeah. but you know, I wouldn't mind if it was a, a Merlin... Uh, a haunting of a of a dummy for sure. That'd be kind of neat. Although he seemed like a nice dude, not like somebody's gonna be cutting up people. And, and that moment, I think, is where he starts to lose it. Is when he snaps at the crowd in the right. early performance when he scream. He just loses his mind and is screaming at everyone. Because I mean, because when, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say because even as a as a performer, one thing that you know that can happen is. If, if you're performing, you're not, you're working, you're not mixing it up with people, you're not getting drunk, you're not, you're not socializing, 
you're on stage working. And so that's a very sort of, it, it makes sense that somebody in this position would do that because that's a very easy way to sort of be around people and be part of a community or be, be out and about is just, you know, hey, you know, like, well, you're getting drunk, I'm up here working and that's how we're gonna keep it. And he kind of has a very lonely existence in general. Yeah, it was just a, he had his own way of dealing with like the heckling aspect of it. Cause like nowadays, like if there's a heckler in the crowd, usually a comedian will like try to turn it against right. them or just like put them into the material at that point in time. I mean, of course, he's, hey, he was just, just yelling primarily. Right. Yeah. I know he was just losing his shit. He wasn't doing it in a creative way. Um, no, he he just and I think that's kind of the moment because then after that he we see fats come into it and basically that persona that can stand up for himself when he can't, yeah. Yeah, Fats is really abrasive and you know, snarky. And likable, like everybody immediately Know, response to him positively so it's it's really like his like everything that he's not basically yeah his alter ego for sure and he has he reminded me a bit you know he kind of has the travis bickle kind of vibe mm -hmm. Corey, you know the main character right, from yeah. Taxi driver uh where he's kind of that schlubby like he just has his like normal button-up shirt and he it's kind of doesn't fit him totally well and his hair is kind of sloppy and seventies look too though. <laughs> that is the seventies look too. He's coming back but, uh, my nephew. He's got wild hair like he's not super stylish huh? on stage, you know. But he's not like really stylish on stage, you know. He's he's up on stage doing his thing and he's just kind of in regular street clothes. Yeah, he's vanilla. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so Oh wait for the record, if my nephew's watching, I love you. I think you're awesome. <laughs> Great. I'm with it. Okay, let's move on. You're not a schlub. You're not a schlub. <laughs> so, we're getting to where we meet Anne Margaret. He, so, so yeah. he, goes, he does that thing where he goes to his old house, which was for sale, and nobody lived there, and he, nobody was there, which kind of made me think, how long has that house been for sale? Like, did nobody buy it or live there since his family died? Like, what's going on? But Nobody's there. And then he goes to, is it like, the thing I, I was thinking is, or wondering is, he goes to the those cabins where Anne Margaret mm -hmm. is, and this is where pretty much the rest of the movie takes place. Um, it's it's kind of one of those, like, camping cabin hotel places, right? So, where you can... Well, um, T, you're up in the, in the, in the Midwest. Uh, the Catskills, I know they're in the East over in New York, right? But uh, I... I I mean, just from watching TV shows, because I don't know anything about the Catskills other than, like, it's in the Marvelous, the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is, like, you know, in the 50s and 60s, 50s. And so I think it was a big deal where, like, families would go vacation together. So you have different resort areas, some of them richer than mm -hmm. others. This one was probably more of, like, you know, the average priced for, like, you know, mm -hmm. middle-income um, middle Americans. But even that, like, we're talking now the late 70s, so they're not as popular anymore. But again, like, right. I don't know too much about... I mean, it, it always sounds like a cool place, because you also... I think that might be where, like, um, Dirty Dancing takes place or some shit. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, like, the, the only place like that or 
around here, like either campsites or they have like a lot of like cabin areas, mm-hmm. like up in like the Dells. Mm-hmm. And it's like you know, like, be, like resort the style thing. where there's like activities and like for mm-hmm. for every member of the family kind of thing. Right. And the lake with the raft and everything out in the lake and that whole. Thing. But I think like it's, <laughs> it's an area versus their particular little pond and their and their little you know cabins because they seem pretty like uh, rustic. Hmm. And it must be the off season because there's nobody there at all. Well, the Catskills is supposed to be huge in the summer, and just based on those movies that I mentioned, and everybody was you know bundled up, so it sounds like it was the fall since there was no snow. So it was probably really right after the season. Mm-hmm. And she was closed. So Yeah, that's true. That's right. They were closed and he said 50 bucks a night and she was happy about that. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> in 2023 money, that's like, that'd be like 200 bucks a night. Like, or, I don't know. I have enough <laughs> a night. <laughs> like a thousand a night. Uh, and yeah, so she. So we see Anne Margaret, which I I knew her by name, but I wasn't as familiar with her. I, I did you know look mm, her up after to remind me. She was in a Grumpy Old Men, remember? So, and this is the era too. People may not realize now, but this was the era where it was like, especially for a, I mean, probably mainly for a woman actor. Once you hit, like, your mid-30s, like, your career was pretty much over at that point, and it, it was, like, the downward slope at that point, and, they, and you would do, like, low-budget horror movies or whatever. So it was a much more, like, harsher time. So this would, I think, sort of be viewed as, like, a step down for her to be in this movie. Maybe, uh, but I mean, I think the movie was definitely trading on her name recognition. Oh, for sure. Well, yeah, for sure. But it's it's kind of that way where, like, in uh, the, like, 70s uh, disaster movie. Sure, sure, yeah. They'd have all these big-name actors in them, but they were all people who were mostly famous, like, 10 or 15 years earlier. Uh, and it's kind of that. It's, it's, it's not really a thing that happens anymore actors and you know everyone are allowed to uh age and still do stuff nowadays but uh back then it was much harsher i think that may also kind of be why they she did a nude scene and they had a more kind of sexy thing with her because it was like hey like you know she's she may be in her 40s but she's still hot Maybe she might have even been in her 30s because, I mean, like, just because I think when she started acting, she was a teenager. So, yeah, like, I don't think she was that old. And she was very beautiful in this movie, too. But was that not the most awkward sex scene? Like, I was like, shit, now I know Anthony Hopkins has a hairy back. A funny thing I noticed, because I'm always looking at weird stuff when I watch movies. (laughs) I was looking at like everything except what you're supposed to be looking at. <laughs> but, uh, a thing I noticed in that sex scene was it was very like expertly choreographed. Where at first you see her from the back and you can kind of see her butt, like her, the blankets are down enough where it's like very like low on her waist, you know. 
And then after a few moments, she kind of rolls to the side. And then all of a sudden, she positions herself in a way where you can't see her butt anymore. And then the scene continues. Bring your butt. And, 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 <laughs> your butt. <laughs> and then the scene continues. And you can see her boob at one point, right? For a few mm. moments. But then he, after a few moments, she moves again in a way where, like, then her boob goes out of view. So I was like, oh, that's so choreographed. Where it was, but like, then later, like, a little bit. A little bit. Then, but then later, they're laying in bed talking after sex, and there's just boob hanging out mm. for everybody to see. Mm. <laughs> and Margaret boob. Sorry, I think I might be too fixated on that. I just didn't expect to see it. <laughs> I forgot about it altogether. <laughs> I might have seen magic on like cable TV, which meant like no boob. So I was very surprised when I saw the boob. I'm like, was this always there? And then like, so you should see my search history. I'm like, and Margaret Age, and Margaret Boob, <laughs> and Margaret Young Boob. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but yeah. So so le- leading up to that, though, basically Corky uh, woos her by a deck magic trick. <laughs> you know, basically charming the pants off of her uh, in this situation. And I'm just like, man, this feels so outdated. Yeah, because it was so aggressive, right? Like it was very, uh, it was very ne- negative and aggressive, and like just it's the '70s, so it's supposed to be attractive, right. like. You mean the part where he like loses his shit again and like the one where he's trying to do the trick yeah. and he like sort of fails and then he's like, No, I have to do it for Right. Like, and then they and then they sleep together, right? Wasn't that right before they slept together or after? It was right before. See, and like that that was the same problem I had with like Terror Train when like when I first saw that. I was like, Is magic really that popular at this point in time? Actually, you know, I um, it can be impressive. I, I think once somebody like show me a really cool magic trick and like that was a little that was a little attraction, yeah. You know? It kinda worked. Well I mean I, I get like the, the sleight of hand aspect. Like if you're you're you know if you're right there mm-hmm. and seen it before yes. and you're like, Oh, how the hell did you do that? But the interesting thing is is that's one of the examples where something sort of seemingly maybe supernatural happens because it, there isn't like a trick aspect to it. It's more like he literally is like concentrating to read her mind and know what the card. But then later he but says, he- "I mean, I believe you there." That I thought it was very natural. But then later he makes up um, after they're fighting because she doesn't want to leave without telling her husband that she's leaving because he's already dead. Um, he um, asks Bats, tells her that it was a trick after all, that it was a sleight of hand. Right. Right. And this is where another weird sort of problem aspect of the movie happens because they do some interesting stuff where, like, they do the thing where, uh, and I think this is all intentional, where they leave out information mm-hmm. and then you get that information later and it's like, oh, like it sort of makes you realize things about what happened earlier. Yeah. When they meet initially, uh, they interact and then they go their separate ways. And then there's this really funny part. At least it was funny to me uh, where he goes, uh, Did- she didn't know who I was. And then it cuts to her and she goes, he didn't know Yeah, who I that was, was so cute. It felt so like romantic comedy. Style. Yeah. 
said, you know. Uh, but the thing is, is of course, they do have some history. They know okay. each other from the past. And then there's that little clip where they're in high school and they have a different actor for him playing high school, um, you know, high school quirky. But then it's Anne Margaret playing a high school girl. And I'm like, yeah, put her way in the back. Because I mean, she's gorgeous. But I'm like, come on, Anne Margaret. <laughs> but she looked and they gave her long hair. I was like, that looks cool. That looks good. But uh, so going back to this weird relationship dynamic that we have with the, with the love triangle, right? It was, now that I think about it, it was like, whoa, like, why did she go for Corky? Because, I mean, okay, so Duke comes back. That's her husband. And, um, yeah, he's very harsh with her, right? So, and then at one point, like, he almost threatens to hit her. Okay, I forgot about that. So, yeah, he sucks too. But uh... go a little before that oh. because... The way the movie is structured, it's kind of weird because when they meet, so once they do sort of get together, they have a conversation where uh, Corky says something along the lines of, uh, you know, he's like, uh, oh, I was wondering, you know, like I always thought about you and I thought you would be like married and have kids and be living off somewhere. And she's just like, hey, and she doesn't really respond. And then they, sleep together and then you find out that she has a husband like you literally don't know she has a no. husband after they sleep together. i think i thought they did because he, he was like oh are you still with so-and-so does he still look like james dean right that whole conversation didn't that happen before oh, was that before do they talk about the husband i thought they did oh i guess but maybe they don't but they don't what they don't reveal is like that they have a bad marriage um. I think so. It ends up kind of being like, oh, this feels like Anne Margaret's character is kind of a bad person because they're just kind of jumping into bed together, and we don't really see the husband be bad until later. And then it's like, oh, okay, well, he's really mean and abusive, so that's why she doesn't like him and why she wants to cheat on him. Yeah, you got something to. <laughs> What's up? I was asking if you had some input to about about uh, some of these uh, abusive dudes. That, the two abusive dudes you've got to decide between. <laughs> Which Man. I'm, I'm sorry, suggesting that at that point, like, just walk into the lake. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, because they both, like, they have, they're both the same, not the same, but uh, they have the, they do the similar thing where, like, they're very emotional and aggressive with her to the point where it's like, oh, shit, are they going to do something to her? And then they're, like, mm -hmm. super vulnerable and sad, and they love her so much, and you're like, I guess. And I was like, wait, no. Like, that's that whole, like, old trope of, like, oh, he's only abusive towards you because he loves you so much. And so, but, I mean, like, Corky isn't that much better either, right? So he, ha he has those sort of abusive moments as well. And, you know, it's 1978. She just kind of goes with it. So, like, <laughs> and because then, like, later, I mean, they do that little twist where... You expect her husband to continue to be a really huge asshole. And then he takes Corky out on the lake only to like sort of bare his soul and like basically cry about the fact that his wife doesn't mm -hmm. love him anymore and just being really vulnerable and stuff, which again, like crocodile tears. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it, yeah, toxic relationships, man. Fun. Yeah, you know, I, I for sure thought like in the first watch that he was sending him out to the lake to kill. Yeah, him. for sure. You know, after find after finding out that uh, you know 
Peggy had lied to him about sleeping with Corky. Because, you know, he was trying to, like, get a direction from both of them. Because he does ask, uh, you know, Corky about it. About, you know, the conversation that they just had. And then, you know, you basically have uh, Duke saying, like, you know, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm I'm losing her. You know? He's losing her, Margaret. I'd be sad, too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, and it's kind of that, like, she's kind of, you know, got the abusive husband and so she is kind of putting up with uh the abuse from corky like it's like average it's like the cycle of abuse kind of thing where it's just like she's getting away from her abusive husband but she's kind of going towards a guy who's still like just as abusive anyways yeah uh uh and Sorry. So it's kind of sad because she's such a like uh almost overly like peppy and upbeat character throughout this, yeah. with everybody else being so downbeat that it's like it, on one hand it almost felt off where it was like, oh my god, she's way too happy. But uh but it's also kind of good because it's kinda like She's trying to be upbeat and happy, mm-hmm. like the character, you know. She's trying to be like, oh, I'm going to get away from my husband and have a better life with Corgi uh, kind of thing. But not so much, unfortunately. All right. So at this point, uh, we've got Corgi at the at the cabins. Uh, Corgi has had sex with Anne-Margaret. Um, and he's in their... They're, and right before Duke comes back, actually, so they've decided they're going to be together, and or at least they they're talked about it, right? And so he, right, and he has managership exactly. Oh, this was so good. So he has a little you know breakdown moment where he's talking to himself as Fats, and the and the manager immediately uh, who has tracked him down uh, very cleverly, you know, by just spending money on bribing people to tell him where, where the cab driver took him, uh, you know, is able to see the fact that Corky's lost it and like he needs help. And, uh, that was a really fantastic scene. I really enjoyed that. And he was like, I don't know, like that Ben Green character, like he was caring, but like, you know, no nonsense. Mm -hmm. It, it, but it, it sounded like he genuinely cared because he could have been like, don't worry about everything. Everything will be fine. I'll see you in New York. And then just like ghosted him, right? But no, he wanted to help him. He wanted to like, you know, I don't know. Oh, maybe, yeah. or is it maybe that like dudes don't immediately sense danger when somebody's like, you know, behaving uh, unbalanced, you know? And Well, yeah, no, he, uh, he's, you know, because he's seen it, that character has seen it, the manager, he's seen it before with, celebrities going off the deep end and he sees that this is happening to Corky now too yeah. and he's kind of like ah too bad like he's kind of like oh you're screwed at this point unless you uh you know change your life right now you're basically doomed at this you know and uh and then we get maybe I mean it was a bit goofy the mur- the murder that happened I mean but it's so funny how it's like filmed the way it's like like you see the doll kind of fly through the frame okay, and yeah. the head hits, <laughs> oh that part uh, 
we're like, Corky's like, he's like, you gotta get him, you gotta kill him. He's like, with what? With, with me, with me. And it's just like lots of yelling, lots of camera work, and you know, it puts you in the moment real good, and then bam, killed with a big wooden dummy. Although that actually killed, just knocked unconscious. <laughs> well, that's right. As, as we find out later mm-hmm. when he's swimming the body out to to sink him in the lake. No, it's hilarious. Like, isn't there like, I think there's snapping turtles in there and snakes. And then Fess is like, I don't care if there's fucking Loch Ness out there. You gotta swim to the middle of the lake. <laughs> and then as he's going into the lake to, with the body of Ben Green, like, there's a little snapping turtle that goes into the water, too. Yeah. there's a, You actually see a little turtle swimming around in there. That is funny. funny. Mm-hmm. And of course, all this stems from the fact that Green was uh, basically threatening, well, not really threatening, but saying like, you know, he was going to help Corky mm-hmm. and he was going to call the doctors to get him some help uh, just because, you know, he couldn't last five minutes without using, uh, you know, the Fats voice. Two and a half minutes. Uh, at, like at all, which was fantastic because, you know, it was very uneasy. And, you know, Anthony Hopkins kept asking like, what well, okay, how it? long has it been? You know, oh, this is. Oh, five minutes? Oh, that's easy. Because, you know, initially when Green walks in, uh, Corky basically chalks up to, oh, you know, I'm just practicing. This is just part of the act. You know, I'm in control of the situation. Uh, When Green knew that was all just horseshit, and that was not actually the case just because this has been something that he has seen uh, in the past. But, you know, I I love the fact that, you know, with this kill and dumping the body into Mm -hmm. the lake ties into, like, the whole Odin fishing trip, because you do have like that great fake out moment where uh, Duke is, you know, trying to pull mm-hmm. something out it's of the lake, and he's like, "Oh man, this sounds like a big one." And the whole time, Porgy's like freaking the fuck with out the, because he knows there's a body with the, big, with the whole like oar in his hands, ready to fucking like <laughs> pummel like Duke, <laughs> and then slowly puts it down when it when it was a just a, a piece of log. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that scene is awesome. Uh... It, uh, I love how in that scene when they go fishing together, it starts out and it's kind of like you're wondering if the husband is going to attack yeah. Court. That's why he's bringing him out and there. And he cries like a baby. But then he cries and t- he kind of asks Corgi and talks to him. And then he goes fishing. And then as you were saying, he, he thinks like, oh, no, is he going to pull up the body, and I love how uh, Corgi is standing behind him, lifting up the oar to smash him over the head if the body comes up, but then when it's the branches, he lowers it back down again and doesn't kill him. That was really well done. Agreed. It was good. I dug it. Yep, and of course, I do uh, find Green's body towards the edge of the lake. Uh, So, you know, Duke... You know, very nervous at this point. He's like, fuck, this guy probably something to do with it. So he goes, uh, well, initially he sends Corky to go get help, you know, trying to get the paramedics there or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, he decides to make a beeline straight to Corky's cabin, uh, you know, just trying to find any sort of identification since there wasn't a wallet or anything to ID uh, green at the time when I pulled the body. Right. And there, like, he, um, well, he tried to resuscitate green, but mm-hmm. was unable to, and then was, <clears throat> was inclined to go check out the cabin. But so this is where we also start seeing, like, you get a, um, 
you get a little psych out where you, the, you see the, you see fats moving, you see his eyes moving and then ever so slightly his head at one point. So then he goes to investigate and then you get a pretty decent kill there. Like that was really interesting because, you know, you're wondering, you know, is he, isn't he moving on his own fast? Most blatantly show fats killing the husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then of course, there's the little thing where Corky is suddenly there right after the murder happens. Uh, and he's right there. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, he was behind. There was a, a curtain that uh, that uh, that Fats was sitting in front of, and Corky was behind them, like moving him. Although at that point, you know, I figured uh, maybe he was better better able to murder Duke through Fats because you know it, it's too it was too tra- too traumatic to believe he was doing it himself. Although he had already done it with Green, but you know, at that point, you're just swinging a dummy around here. You got to poke somebody with a you know with a knife. But, uh, and also, I don't know if you mentioned it, but that the husband, that's where he also finds the uh, identification yes. stuff for the kill, the murder manager and realizes mm-hmm. that Corky is the killed him. Yeah. Who he is. Uh, which was like, the thing that was funny too was when Fats, because Fats is the one who had the idea to take the identification stuff off of him and then throw him in the lake. Mm-hmm. And I thought for sure that Fat, because Fats was smart enough to do that, and I thought that he would dispose of the identifying stuff. And so when he found that stuff in the drawer, I was like, what the hell? Like, you went through all that effort of getting rid of that stuff. Why did you keep it in your dresser drawer? <laughs> <laughs> but I guess it makes sense, though, because, you know, he's kind of crazy yeah. at that point. Should have hit it in one of the other cabins. And it also is a good time to point out that uh, Corky, or I mean, the Fats basically looks like Corky. And uh, we start getting to the point where they, if you notice, they start putting makeup on. Yeah. They put makeup on, uh, was it Anthony Hopkins? Oh, they do? Where he has like the rosy cheeks and the nose and the chin, the way that Corky has that makeup on his face. Totally. That I did notice yeah, dressing then, the same though after a while. Yeah, it's at that point where they basically start dressing exactly the same, uh, and he starts looking. Anthony Hopkins starts to look more and more quirky. Wow, crazy! Nice. Which and this was also just to kind of go back to how this is a novel. I was kind of thinking about how at this point in the movie how. Uh, this wouldn't work well as a novel. Maybe it works better as a novel because when you're reading it and you're not actively seeing Corky and uh, Bats, then there would be much more like kind of mixing up who's who in in your head. You know what I mean? I think they would merge together a lot more than watching it. Yeah, agreed. I think that sounds right. Because this is definitely one of those stories, and I didn't know, uh, as you mentioned, how the book is from the perspective of Fats, but this is definitely one of those stories where it's like, you know, it's all from inside. It's the unreliable narrator, right. uh, and it's all from in their head. <clears throat> story, mm-hmm. So at this point, uh, we have Corky 
uh, trying to, you know, persuade Peggy to, you know, run away with him, you know, start a new life together, all of that, uh, <laughs> you know, all that spiel, and, uh, you know, and Margaret is just initially like, no, no, I can't do that, you know, I need to talk to Duke first, you know, I need to, you know, face this head on, you know, talk to him face to face, uh, and, you know, like, she has no idea, like, what has happened at this point in time, she thinks everything is absolutely fine, uh, until, you know, we do see Fetz, you know, move a little bit, uh, and, you know, he, that's when we get the reveal that, oh, yeah, you know, that card trick was just all just a ruse that he uses to seduce women, and, uh, you know, basically, like, you know, she was just the latest victim to, you know, yeah. fall into that trap, and that's when we start to see, like, that rejection aspect between the two characters, uh, where, you know, initially she's kind of just, you know, repulsed mm -hmm. by his actions, uh, and she locks herself in the bedroom at that point. He, uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, she kind of figures out who he is, and Fats t uh, tells a story about how uh, he had, like, used, I think, the same magic trick or a different one. Stewardesses and stuff, yeah. Mm -hmm. And which was kind of cool, too, because it's like, uh, you know, like, as we were sort of talking about earlier, there's so much time compression where there's a lot of stuff happening that we're not seeing. It's kind of cool to find out that he isn't really this, like, great kind of pure person that he was definitely taking advantage of his fame. Sleeping around and stuff, yeah. Yeah, sleeping around and kind of being kind of sleazy with yeah. uh, women, doing magic, his magic <laughs> tricks to seduce women, and kind of seeing that, oh, well, he, you know, isn't, like, he isn't this pure person that he sort of sees himself as, you know? I, yeah, and then we, uh, right after this, though, uh, we come on to this, honestly, like, probably the best scene of the movie, where Anthony Hopkins, you just kind of remember what a ridiculously good actor he is. So the scene between him and Fats, where he's, Fats is basically telling him, like, I'm taking over your, I'm taking over. And he's like, mm -hmm. you know, walk like a, you know, walk on all fours like a dog, bark and smile and grimace and, and, you know, oh, you're feeling fine. No, you've got a headache. And, and so that whole scene where Anthony Hopkins is just like crawling around the cabin, like losing his shit. And mm -hmm. it was really like, you know, like it, it was, uh, it was really good, you know, like it really sucks you in. You kind of for, forget that you're watching a movie for a split second and like you, 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 it, you know, that really dark realization, you know, you come to this really dark realization that, like, Anthony Hopkins has no fucking control over himself, or Corky has no fucking control over himself anymore, and then Fats starts telling him, like, get a knife, and, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna go, you're gonna go kill Peg, and so, like, yeah, that was pretty awesome, and then you have, like, that, that little scene was fantastic, and then, of course, uh, Unless you guys want to have a little bit more input here on this scene before we move on to the other great scene of him stalking and Margaret. <clears throat> Basically, he, uh, he makes her the wooden heart. Well, right before that, where no, no, yeah, he makes her the wooden heart, where he uh, he goes to her as as Fats, right? But he's mm -hmm. he's 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 trying to draw her out of her bedroom because she's locked in her bedroom. And um, he's basically getting ready to kill her and um, uses a voice of fats to try to draw her out of a room, which he does. It actually is successful, but he's able to like sort of fight the, ur the urge or the, the command to kill her. Mm -hmm. 
And of course, oh, he's yeah. being very apologetic in that scene to to help draw her out. Oh right, yeah. But he's being really psycho at mm. the same time. And then they do that kind of cool cinematic thing where you think that he killed her. Like it sort of alludes to the fact that he killed her, but then you see that he's actually stabbed himself right. instead. He took himself out because he realized he was didn't want to obviously didn't want to kill. Well, I mean, like, we we kind of skimmed over not skimmed over, but we we forgot to talk about that little scene where he's um, telling Fats that he's gonna marry her, he's gonna leave him behind, he's gonna go to Paris, just the two of them, and um, excuse me, I'm getting emotional. And then that's when like you know Fats is like, well, fuck you, but basically like you know he did want to just go off with her, but this other part of this other persona that he had made up, like this wasn't going to have it. And, uh, so yeah, like that, I don't know, a little, a little tidbit, but eh, whatever that cool scene, but not one of the, not one of the leading ones, but yeah. And then of course you have your super, your set, your two super sad scenes, one where Corky dies alongside Fats. And then of course, and Margaret's like, Fuck it, let's just leave together. I love you. Let's start a life together. It's gonna be great. You know what? Let's go fuck. Let's go get married. <laughs> let's go to Paris. And you're like, damn it, so close. <laughs> Which uh, she, yeah, at that point she doesn't know yet that her husband is dead, uh, and she doesn't know, of course, that uh, Corky is dead. No. Basically, I'll find point. out when she goes to clean that cabin. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, yeah, so the, I liked the little twist uh, where, you know, he stabs himself, which is kind of like, uh, it's funny because it's very like, you know, he uh, has a little like circle of blood on his stomach and Fats says something like, oh, like it's getting bigger. Like he sort of uh, references the fact that the blood stain is getting but it's really not. It's just kind of like a little circle. Of- well, I like the, that he talks a little bit about the pain. So it's Corky talking about the pain of like being stabbed and how it starts to shut down everything else inside of you, which you don't really, I hadn't really heard before, but it makes sense. And so it was kind of, I thought it was kind of neat. Yeah, he's like, my tummy hurts. Yeah. And then, uh, it's spreading, uh, yeah. Anthony Hopkins takes his hand away and you see the because I killed this buddy. <laughs> and of course, there's that uh, question of like, well, which one of them is actually going to die first Ooh. in this moment? Or are they both just going to go out together? together I, I would assume. And, uh, you know, like, and then I was, remember when I was a kid, I was really sad because I wanted, of course, when you see a, when a movie tells you these two are romantic and you want them to be together and you don't want them to die. And uh, growing up, I'm like, Oh no, he was fucked up. He was never coming back from that. <laughs> and Margaret is lucky, not about the Duke thing and not about having to clean up three bodies, but you know, about the not ending up with Corky things. That was that was that was okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's super messed up. It's just like, oh my god, like it's it's such a dark ending <laughs> where everybody's dead basically, and she's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's run away together. <laughs> let's do it. Uh, and she she doesn't realize what's happened. Uh, yeah, that's so dark. I was like, oh my mm-hmm. god. Like, yeah, I was 12 when I watched this, I think. It was just like, I was crying my <laughs> eyes out. But you know, it's really interesting um, the way that 
pop culture has always sort of, not always, let me rephrase that, not all of them, but always, you know, painted the, uh, the, the killers as, you know, uh, like, how, how would you say it? Like just, uh, sympathetic. Yeah. So that you're like, Oh, I love them. They just need help. They just, need, they just need my mothering in her church. I can fix you. I can fix you <laughs> and I will love you and it will be great. And you will need me forever. I'm guessing. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely doing that on purpose. Oh, yeah, but they like... do that in a bunch of movies, you know? Remember that the one with Brendan Fraser from the 90s? The... Um... A bunch of Brendan Fraser. <laughs> I know. Let me let me narrow it down. Um, it's with uh, Ashley Judd and he. Encino Man. No. <laughs> Not Encino Man. It's Ashley Judd and he, he. His parents are like in a religious cult, and. Uh, like it's like they're in the bunker underground. No, that's blast from the past. <laughs> they were oh. religious. Um, it's it's you don't get to meet his parents. Like the intro is where um, he gets separated from his parents, but he was brought up in this like religious cult, and he's already a grown ass hot man. And uh, he ends he's in the forest, and he ends up near Ashley Judd's house, and he's like a religious zealot, and Ashley Judd is just like a wild child, like you know she lives there, and, and she's like sort of you know with uh. I forget this dude's name. Uh, he's a famous. It's the Vito Vito Morganson. Darkly Moon. Yeah, Darkly that's Noon. the one. What is it called? The Passion of Darkly Thank Noon. You. It was in '95. We've, we've had a that. conversation about this, John. Really? <laughs> yeah, um, where it's like he's a psycho, a religious psycho, and he has sexual feelings for Ashley Judd, but she's not interested in him. And he's not supposed to because, you know, she's already married to some other dude. And so he is struggling with his own sexual desires and, like, you know, masturbates behind, like, drawn curtains and shit or blinds. And, and then at the end ends up burning her house and trying to rape her, I think. But she's in love with him. No, she's in love with Viggo Morganson. But then it's, like, oh. hot-ass Brandon Fraser in the early 90s or mid-90s. So, like, everybody who's watching that is like, God damn, he's so hot. I can fix him. Mm. You know? No yeah, no, definitely there is meant to be that aspect with him, but, for sure. Yeah, like, want him, love him, he's bad, he's evil. And he does sacrifice himself at the end. He refuses to murder her. I think Brenda Fraser does, too. Mm -hmm. So he is good in the end. Because, of course, that's the gist of the movie, is that he's kind of a good, regular person who just was, like, driven insane by the entertainment industry, I guess. I mean, that's pretty much what happens in this movie is it's the crowd. Yeah, me. Interactions with the crowd. No, I got the sense that he was already deeply unwell and he was never going to be well, but he loved her enough that he took himself out before hurting her because he realized that she was an innocent and, you know, she's Anne-Margaret and you really shouldn't do anything bad to Anne-Margaret. And ultimately, she is better off. Like, even though it's a harsh ending... She's kind of better off because, like, I mean, it's bad her husband got murdered, but I think they were implying that he, like, he was bad. He was an abusive husband, but I think they even implied he was physically abusive. A little bit, they did, yeah. And then, of course, Corgi would have been bad if she had ended up with him, because that would not have, it, they wouldn't have, you know, lived happily ever after if they had run away. Guys, I just got something else. All right. 
At one point, Fats says something I didn't understand at all. So I'm hoping maybe the two of you can translate it for me. Okay, so early in the movie where they just got to the Catskills and right after, you know, right before that scene where they're like, she didn't remember me, he didn't remember me. She's walking away from the cabin and, and Fats says uh, something about how awesome, how hot she is. And then he says, I wonder if her ass is on rails. What does that fucking mean? Yeah, what does he? I don't know. Okay, rails or ball bearings, maybe? Like, I don't understand what it means. Are you looking up the script? No, but like the only. <laughs> the I... only thing I can think of with like that terminology is like snorting cocaine off of her ass. <laughs> like. <laughs> No. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that happened many times. I mean, that's just what I'm... I'm assuming that's what they were meaning. Just some weird 70s saying that, uh, you know... Is like, I mean, it is late 70s, which means all the 70s terminology would apply to it. Right. Yeah. That's what I'm going with. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he had... I mean, one of the funny things about this... So I obviously haven't read the book... But uh, one of the funny things is that Fats is referred to several times throughout the movie as being, like, extremely foul mouthed right. and, like, really swearing a lot. But really, he, you know, in the movie, he, I think he maybe says fuck, like, three or four times, and that's kind of the extent mm -hmm. of his swearing. Mm -hmm. But I really got the sense that in the book, uh, he probably swore a lot, like, maybe... He was extremely, like, the way he talked was probably way more extreme. Uh, and that they had to tone it down a bit for the movie. Because whenever they would make a reference to how sort of, like, uh, I forget what term they would use, like, how much he would swear. I was like, he doesn't swear that, you know, the things he says aren't that, uh, you know, edgy or crazy. Mm -hmm. But I was like, I wonder if they toned that down for the movie a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, because you only get so many. Like, is this a rated R movie? Maybe, probably. Yeah, could uh, be. But it's a fairly light. I mean, it's got some blood and violence, but it's not you know ex extremely gory or no. over the top like the swearing. <clears throat> but um, there's yeah, that it, it felt like he was meant like the comedy aspect of. Uh, of the doll, I'm forgetting his name again, uh, Fats, was probably, it felt like what they were referring to was much more along the lines of like a Richard Pryor type comedy. Right. Uh, but it wasn't quite like that when we actually saw the routine. It was a little bit more tame than that. But And then, of course, we get the twist ending, which I was personally not, totally happy with like on one hand i liked it because it was kind of fun but then i also thought like what the hell because they make it clear that this is a psychological movie and that this is a guy going crazy but then all of a sudden they do this thing at the end that sort of makes it seem like it's the supernatural story because she all of a sudden starts talking like fats and it's like, oh, it's like the, you know, like the the freeze frame ending where 
it's like, oh, now she's going to become the next, uh, you know, she's going to take up fats and become With a crazy. With head, man. <laughs> it's like. But it is subjective for sure. But I thought to my, you know, I, I thought it doesn't work for me because, you know, this is a psychological story. It's not supernatural. So why would she do that? Oh, when and, she talks like him because she's imitating him. Is she's joking? Is she? Yeah. I, I, I interpreted that as she now is like the new uh, Corky. New like she's joking. now like. Yeah. Like, she was, yeah, that's what I thought, you know, like. I thought they were doing the, is, you know, the, is it supernatural or is it thing, you know, where it's like, oh my God, now she's possessed by Colby <laughs> or by uh, fans. And I was like, what the hell? Like, that's not. I thought she was being she, cute, like, you know, you know, doing what he does and yeah, doing yeah. like fats, yeah. That's true, that's true. Yeah, at, at the end of the day, she pulls all those bodies out, and she just goes, man, dodge a bullet there. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Once she gets old enough, and she gets to, like, the late 90s, early 2000s, then she'll realize, oh, you know, back then it was good that I didn't end up with uh, Corky. She's or... going to find out the next morning when she tries to get into that cabin. But, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Guys, I got like ten percent on my device. I forgot to like you know charge it up to get nope. so. All right. <laughs> All right, we'll uh we'll we'll wrap things up. Uh, so yeah, so looking ahead to next week, we will be talking about Dolls release in nineteen eighty seven. That of course directed by Stuart Gordon. Uh, as you know, produced by Charles Band and Brian. Uh, Yusna, who, I mean, we've already talked about some of their uh, movies on, on the podcast, so looking forward to revisiting this one. It's been it's been a long time since I've seen I've, uh, This has been one of my favorite movies, and I'm excited to watch it sober, because <laughs> even though I've watched it a bunch of times, I tend to, like, force my friends to watch it when we've been drinking. Mm -hmm. So it'll be, like, right. a bunch of us sitting around a TV at, like, midnight, some of us falling asleep and me going, no, guys, you got to watch this. And, you know, so I'm, I'm excited to make you guys watch it. So that's good. And I, I think this is, isn't this Full Moon Entertainment where it's, you know, that's Charles Band's company where it's like Doll Man, which is another, not to be confused with Dolls, Doll Man or Time, what was it, um, Time Cop? I think might also be full Time moon. Cup with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, 80s, good 80s B movies made by them, by this team. We'll call them B-plus uh, movies. <laughs> Trancers, I think is Robo Jocks, maybe also the same, some of the same, Richard Band. He, Richard Band had his hand in a lot of and of course, Reanimator, you know, yeah. from Stuart Gordon. Jeffrey, the, the best. Absolutely. So, yeah, so we got dolls next week, and then uh, we will be visiting yeah. Megan once everyone has an opportunity to go see that in theaters. So, should be a good couple of weeks. Uh, so, yeah, so we'll be continuing our Pediophobia deep dive here next week uh, with another older film. 
should be a good time because uh you know i remember reviews for this movie were pretty negative so. <laughs> uh when, when, it, when it came up for no for Dallas. oh the, oh, Meg- the early Megan reviews. <laughs> the, the early Megan reviews have been uh, extremely positive, so fingers crossed that that's going to live up to the expectations. But uh, for now, that will do it for us here tonight on Hand to Scare. I want to thank you guys so much for tuning in, yeah. and uh, we'll see you guys back next Bye. week for Dolls 1987.